O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. But what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you would care for him? You have made him a little lower than the Elohim, and crowned him with glory and honor, and given him dominion over all the works of your hands, and have put all things under his feet. Psalm 8. I am a worm and not a man. Psalm 22. Hello, welcome to Nightlight. I've always had a bit of a problem with the idea that man is a mere tiny afterthought. Some will say and have said, well, look out at the vastness of the universe. Then look at us. Tiny, insignificant planet in a tiny, insignificant speck of a solar system. And we're only the third planet in an even tinier and more insignificant section of that solar system. And then tiniest of all are all of us crawling around on the tiny planet like ants. There's a wonderful country song from a few years ago that says, quote, I hope you still feel small when you stand beside the ocean. Love that song. And I understand the exhortation in that lyric toward humility, but I think it fails to communicate it accurately. See, I never have felt small when I stand beside the ocean because I know that I will exist far beyond the ocean as it now exists. I know that God does not measure value by size. I mean, which is more valuable, a large stack of refuse or a tiny diamond? See, we don't even measure value by size. Well, of course, when compared to God himself, we do come up infinitely lacking. But anything when compared to God, the real God, the eternal Holy One who is beyond all knowing and who cannot be compared to anyone or anything, will come up infinitely lacking. That's surely obvious. Still, while reverently honoring that reality, <clears throat> to me it's always seemed at best confusing and at worst a religious non-truism to refer to man as of no value. Philosophically, it may sound humble, but when applied to our personal sense of ourselves, it just doesn't ring true. I don't think it rings true to the one who says it about him or herself, and I certainly don't think God considers it humble or real, because I don't think God agrees with the idea. When someone says, oh, it's all him and none of me, no scripture supports that idea. When John the Baptist, speaking of Jesus, says, quote, he must increase and I must decrease, he was referring to the position in the minds of the disciples which John held. I must decrease in your view of me and you must begin to see him, your Messiah, as the one who is to take total supremacy in your minds over me and over all things, because he is Lord of all. Of course, he must increase and I must decrease. But somewhere along the line, that verse became a mantra for a pseudo-religious idea that became interpreted with these words, it's all him and none of me. 
And I've heard that phrase in a gazillion variations, used in a gazillion applications, but all basically trying to express a humility which is not humility at all, but a self-annihilation which is closer to the Hindu idea of dissolving into Brahman than anything found in the New Testament. When it comes to our salvation, it is all Him and none of me. When it comes to who is God and who is not, it is all Him and none of me. But when it comes to my having an identity as an individual with feelings and needs, longings and desires and personhood, the one who created me has evidently stated by that creative act that he intends me and you and all humans to have a sense of that personhood in all of its aspects and to learn to rightly relate to him from that place of personhood. And on top of the initial created order which supports my position is an even greater one. That is, that God so desired to have this relationship with his created child that God himself became a human being, and not only became a human being, but did so for the exact purpose of dying an unimaginably agonizing death for the purpose of saving us for himself. And beyond that, rose from the dead and ascended back to the throne of God, where forever he will be a man. He rules the universe as a man. Up till the Incarnation, the Triune God was what it eternally had been. But at the moment of Incarnation, something different, if we can imagine a change in the eternal, was introduced into the Trinity. And as that incarnate God, as man, lived his life on the earth, he was constantly moving in the direction of the cross, where God, as man, would take upon himself the agony which had been caused by man's rebellion in order to deliver man from the ramifications of his sin in that cross. He would then rise from death and ascend back to his Father, where then, as both God and man in a single human body, forever united in his person, no separation between God and man could ever be achieved by man or devil. Why? If man is nothing. This is why the newer hymn books rightly did away with the phrase in the otherwise great hymn at the cross. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? It asks. Well, they changed it to, would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? It may be that the author of that hymn was originally thinking of Psalm 22, where it says, but I am a worm and not a man. The tola worm referred to there was the worm in ancient times which when crushed produced the color purple, so costly that it was worn almost exclusively by royalty. The color purple is formed by the mixing of the earth color red and the heaven color blue in the tabernacle, a proper symbol of the incarnate God coming down to become man while never ceasing 
to be God, in order to be crushed for us and rising to take his kingly throne as the God-man. The hymn writer may also have had in mind Isaiah 41, verse 14, Do not be afraid, O worm, Jacob, for I am with you. The Latin Vulgate translates the phrase worm as do not be afraid, you dead men. The idea here is poetic, and it's not that man is in himself nothing more than a worm, but that Israel in the eyes of her enemies and in her own eyes is the smallest, weakest, and most despised of all her surrounding powerful neighbors, just like she is now. And in that, God is the strength of what would otherwise be a dead man, crushed underfoot like a mere worm. It's not God's definition of them, but that definition of themselves and the definition their enemies gave them. Well, whichever one, or if it's both, the editors understood that many would not have the education to understand the meaning and rightly feared that it would miscommunicate, that it would try to communicate inadvertently a kind of false humility which would be more pagan than Judeo-Christian. So they changed it. For man is not a worm. Worms are not morally responsible. Men are. It's our dignity as humans created in God's own image and likeness that causes our willful choice of sin to be so horrendous. As Oswald Chambers put it, man is a glorious ruin of his true self. Glorious because of who created us and so in his image, and ruined because of our rebellion against our Creator Father. In that cross, Paul tells us we have all been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live, yet no longer us, but Christ who lives in us, Galatians 2.20. This verse has often been misused to support the I am nothing but a worm idea. See, I no longer live, only Christ. But that's not what Paul said. Our hope is only Christ. Our Savior is only Christ. But if he is our hope and our Savior, then surely we understand he was saving something. What was he saving? Not himself for himself. He didn't need saving. He was saving you. As the writer of Hebrews tells us that he went to the cross for the saving of each individual person, that can rightly be amplified to say, He would have done it for you if you had been the only one who needed it. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. Worm theology subtly removes from us the call to become sons of God. It makes a place for the painfully popular but totally false theology that calls us poor sinners saved by grace. Well, we are poor sinners and we are saved only by grace. But the New Testament never allows for that to remain our identity after we come to Christ. Paul refers to himself as the chief of sinners, but that is only one reference up against the many other statements by Paul which trumps that one. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. We are sons, justified, sanctified, destined to be conformed into his image, reconciled, to list them all would take more time than we have in this setting. And it would just be the reading of the whole New Testament, really. 
But it's a travesty to misinterpret that one statement, I am crucified with Christ, I no longer live, as meaning I'm supposed to just disappear in the great Brahman ooze of of deity. No, the verse says, I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. And the life I now live in my flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, we make fun quite often, and rightly so, of the me-centered selfishness of this current culture. And I certainly don't want to add to that already piled high garbage heap of self-centeredness and narcissism. But on the other hand, it's just as unbiblical and just as detrimental to go too far the other direction and try to annihilate ourselves in the name of some false concept of sanctification or holiness. There's a great deal about me in all of this. Christ now lives in me, and the life I now live, in my flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When we've lived long enough to find that we don't know ourselves very well, and that there are layers in us of self-deception, self-hatred, self-will, self-centeredness, self-vainglory, should I keep going? We are both devastated by the depth of our sinfulness and this horror of awareness of our sinfulness then causes us to also adore and love our Savior more than ever. For we begin to see just what we really were apart from Him. And we then realize a tiny bit what kind of love it was that condescended to leave the 99 and come after the one. John tells us that grace and truth came by Jesus Christ in John chapter 1. Notice that grace came before truth. It has been rightly said by wiser folks than me that if grace had not come before truth, if the truth had been revealed without grace, the truth about ourselves would have destroyed us before grace could have helped us. When people say things like, well, I'm just a simple person. I'm what you see. I'm nothing more. I'm always really wary of the danger of that person. None of us are simple. There are layers and depths in us, both for good and for bad. We are a glorious ruin, remember. It is life, love, and holiness that is simple. It is sin and death that is complicated. We are, none of us, just simple. Because we have chosen sin, we are very complicated, and only grace can search us out and sort us out and restore us to our simple, childlike relationship to our Father. That's why C.S. Lewis understood these layers of selfish self-deception in us, and especially the religious sort. He really especially moved in on the religious version of this. So he prayed the valuable prayer. Lord, let it be the real me who prays, and let it be the real you I pray to. 
He paints a vivid picture of the true versus the false self in various portraits in his books, but especially in The Great Divorce. It's a scary picture if we let it speak to us of our own tendencies toward inner falsehood, and I hope you'll take the time to read it. Once we're forgiven and united to Christ, he then begins the ongoing work of restoring us to our true selves in him. We're not just forgiven in the sense of being covered by a band-aid. God is not covering sin that will live on forever with just a covering. He is going to totally restore that which was lost. Save to the uttermost, the book of Hebrews says. King David often had the vision of a new covenant believer, even though he lived under the previous covenant. He saw with the eyes of faith and worship the nature of what a restored humanity and Messiah would be. And among the many prayers he prayed, which reflect his higher understanding, was when he prayed, quote, Unite my heart to fear your name. Psalm 86, 11. He knew himself to be divided inside, scattered within, and that this disintegration would keep him from God. So he cried out for God to gather him together before the Lord, unite his heart to give him an undivided inner life in an undivided union with the Lord. No mixture, no double-mindedness, no divided loyalties. Simple, not complicated. It would take an entire separate study to even begin to examine all the verses related to David on this level. One thing we can be certain of from this and many other verses like it. David was put in the scriptures in order to reveal the proper balance we are all to have in our personal relationship with God. That God is high and holy, expressed in the phrase, to fear your name, and that he loves us intimately and is present to us personally, in the phrase, unite my heart. So we are to be united to him first, And then from that strong place of union with God, we can begin to deal with the shrapnel of a broken, divided inner being. We do not strive to become good enough for God. That's why grace came before truth. But we rest in that grace in order for whatever is broken in us to eventually be brought into the light and put right. If we hold to the I'm-just-a-worm theology, then we end up hiding behind a misunderstanding of grace. We might be saved and going to heaven, but we don't understand what salvation was about, and so we end up with a church full of people who are broken, double-minded misrepresentations of what Jesus died for and what he intended. We take refuge in the identity of being sinners, And so we sin and we sin and we sin with no conception that we were already delivered, not just from the penalty of it, but that we are to be delivered from the power of it. And so the church ends up being full of people who sin and presume that grace will cover it like a Band-Aid. Now that we all have weaknesses and ongoing struggles is obviously not something that we need to have to prove. The proof is everywhere. 
But the call and the promise and the purchased possession is that he who has begun a good work in us will complete it. And we allow God to complete it when we ask him to do it. To do what he promised to do in Jeremiah and Ezekiel when the new covenant was first revealed through those prophets. I'll write my laws on their hearts and on their minds and cause them to walk in my ways. Well, we all suffer from the shards of a disintegrating humanity. Childhood loss or worse, deprivation of the basic principles needed to be human has left so many of us with a shaky adulthood. Pain and hard experience may have helped us from childhood on to form a hard, seemingly strong exterior, but down lower in the foundational parts of the floors of our souls, we can feel the cracks. Sometimes, depending on the outer pressure, we feel those cracks widening. And in especially rough times, we may even feel like the entire structure of who we are could come tumbling down. Psalm 31 is one of those great examples I mentioned previously of how David seems to have a new covenant audacity. Reminds me of a totally trusting child who comes bounding through the doors of the boardroom where his daddy is the presiding CEO of the company, ignores all the protocols, ignores the calls of the secretaries to stop him and lands through the doors in his dad's lap, blurting out his immediate needs. That's who David's prayers often strike me as being like. And I can sense him looking back at me and saying, this is how you're supposed to do it. So I often do it. The Hebrew of this particular psalm has interesting elements in it which make the picture of a boy crying to his dad even more vivid. He begins, You are my shelter, my quickly built fort. That's the Hebrew idea. For you are my hiding place. Get me out of this mess that I'm in. They've laid a net for me. You're my stronghold. In your hands, I commend my spirit. There's that revelation of the new covenant coming through David. I rejoice in your kindness because you saw my affliction. You know the strains on my life. All my times are in your hand. Let your face shine on me. You see, when you, when you take the verses out and you just begin to put these words together, I know you watch me closely. You're you're my you're with me in the battlefield. <clears throat> Help me build a fortress. You're my fortress. You're my hiding place. I, I celebrate your kindness because you watch me closely. You know all the d- details of the affliction on my life. You know the strain I'm under. My favorite part, all my times are in your hand. Let your face shine on me. Then he closes with the invitation to you and me to do the same. Identity crisis is a modern problem created by our ongoing lack of wisdom, our rejection of truth, and our loss of community. 
It's made worse by our electronic counterfeits and our pseudo-celebrity idolatry, TV and all the rest of it. But even apart from those issues, David felt the disintegration of all that was around him. Everything that told him who he was was disintegrating in Psalm 31. Loss of safety, loss of family, loss of friends. Not only loss of friends, but total rejection by them. Loss of his own inner security that was so painful that it affected his very core and his physical well-being. Just an aside note here, but worth our interest. Hebrew never makes too much of a difference between emotional and physical sickness. Because it sees the body, the soul, and the spirit as one entity, the way God created it. It seems that death is the devil's attempt to rip us apart, to disintegrate us, to pull the spirit and the flesh apart from each other, which is what death is. Death is an abnormality. It's why it's called the last enemy in 1 Corinthians 15. The enemy so hates our being created as both spirit and flesh that his concept of death was to rip it apart, to rip the spirit from the flesh. And if he cannot do it literally, he would then try to do it in our conception with the Gnostic lie that spirit is good and physical is evil and to tear apart flesh from spirit in our thinking. So even though Christ has destroyed the power of death, the enemy still seeks to create that concept of death in the minds of Christians by false teaching. Again, that's an aside, but I wanted to mention it. I'm sure I'll talk about it more so we can get it in our hearts and minds correctly. Verse 14, 15, 16, and 17 of Psalm 31 is me and you, you and me. Me and you, you and me. I trust in you, you are my God. All my times are in your hands. Let your face shine upon me. Let me not be disappointed as I call on you. You see that? Me and you, you and me. Me and you, you and me. We all have heard criticisms, and I have been one who has given those criticisms, of a me-centered, narcissistic, childish kind of Christianity that doesn't uphold the holiness of God and that makes everything about me. But you know what? Maybe, maybe, Part of the reason we're so narcissistic is not because we have too much of a revelation of what I'm talking about here, but maybe it's because we don't have any at all. Maybe we're screaming to be met as if God had not already met us. Maybe we're screaming to be met because we don't really believe yet that we are who he says we are. And in this milieu of identity crisis, imposed electronic facelessness that we're all being so injured by, maybe that's why we keep falling back into aspects of self-centeredness and narcissism, that a real revelation of our preciousness and uh, intimacy with God would deliver us from. 
I trust in you. You are my God. All my times are in your hands. Let your face shine upon me. Let me not be disappointed as I call on you. You know, of all those phrases, the one that has always moved me the most is, all my times are in your hands. I guess it's because I'm getting to the age where I have a lot of times that are in his hands. Times when life seemed rich and full of promise and all my roads were before me. And times when everything looked finished and washed up with no more hope. Times when loved ones were near and comfort came easy. And times when everyone I loved seemed far away and sometimes uncaring. Times when everything seemed to work like a well-tuned machine and times when nothing seemed to work and I wondered if I was cursed. Times when I feel clean and whole and walking in my uprightness and true identity. In times of shame and failure when I have willfully sinned or fallen from weakness. Times of joy when life is full of goodness and meaning. Times when sorrow feels never-ending and nothing seems to make sense. Times when my faith seems unshakable and unshaken. Times when I feel the stress so strongly that I wonder if I ever really had faith at all and if I understand what it means. All, all my times are in your hands. And so David says, so let your face shine upon me. Do you see the little boyness of this? I mean, I, I hope you I hope you get the picture of it painted clearly in your thinking. There's a childlike trust and helplessness and desperation and audacity all wrapped up in this all at the same time. It's in these times of of loss of self-reliance, that we will do one of two things. Either we will lose our sense of self because it's so fragile, because it's built on such a tiny, impotent, unreliable, vacuous vapor of modern falsehood. And it it's easy to evaporate when the uh, hot wind blows on it. Or in these times when our sense of self is being shaken. We do what David did. We, we run to the rock who is our stronghold and our safe place. And we ask him to build us a tent and come in just like a little boy. Build me a tent, Daddy, and then come in and stay with me inside it. Of course, with God, he is the tent. He is the covering. He is the shelter. He has to stay inside it because he's it. But it's in these times when everything around us is taken from us or everything that we trusted in is shaken that we have the opportunity to go deeper into who we are and discover more fully who we are 
in Him and in our relationship to Him and who He really is with us. Now, most of us listening to this have been through our own private versions of of these stresses, but probably none of us, myself included, have ever faced it on the level that many of our brothers and sisters around the world are now facing it. But we may. We, we may find that the things that we've been brought through are only the beginning of our classroom experience of trusting God in times of shaking. Trusting God in times of, of great stress, even to the point of uh, seeing ourselves facing potential martyrdom. And I know this sounds too simplistic and too easy for me to say in the privacy of my study, sitting in my desk chair at my little computer, but nobody who's ever faced these things had a practice run before they began. They simply did what you and I are doing. I read about the saints down through history, that's one reason I enjoy biographies so much. I read of, of how they prepared, how they uh, got themselves ready for what they saw as a possible coming persecution or a possible coming scenario in which they might give the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, Watchman Nee, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, many others. And so in in light of that, I want to bring this time together to a close, reading from a poem written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he was in prison. The poem is called, Who Am I? And it was inspired after writing a letter to one of his loved ones in which he says, what do they see from the outside when they look in the, the, the keyhole? He, there was a hole in his door where the guards could look in on him anytime they wanted to, and he didn't know if they were looking or not. He couldn't tell when they were looking or how long they were looking. And this set his mind into thinking, what do they see from the outside? And what do I see of that same person they're looking at from inside myself. Do both see the same person? Do, do the guys looking in at me see me? And does Dietrich Bonhoeffer looking at myself, inside myself, see the same person? And so he wrote this poem. Who am I? They often tell me. I stop out from my cell and Composed, contented, and sure, like a lord from a manor. Who am I? They often tell me. I speak with jailers, frankly, familiar, and firm, as though I was in command. But who am I? They also tell me I bear the days of hardship, unconcerned, amused, and proud, like one who usually wins. Am I really what others tell me? Or am I only what I myself know of me? 
troubled, homesick, ill, feeling like a bird in a cage, gasping for breath as if I'm being strangled, hungering for colors, for flowers, for songs of birds, thirsting for kind words, for human company, quivering with anger at despotism and petty insults, anxiously waiting great events, helplessly worrying about loved ones far away, empty and tired of praying, of thinking, of working, exhausted and ready to bid farewell to it all. Who am I? This one or the other? Am I then this today and the other tomorrow? Am I both at the same time, in public a hypocrite and by myself a contemptible whining weakling? Or am I to myself like a beaten army flying in disorder from a victory already won? Who am I? Lonely questions mock me. Who I really am, you know me. I am thine, O God. I have read Bonhoeffer's poems and his writings from prison, as I have read the writings of other saints who were in times of similar difficulty. Madame Guillaume, uh, St. Catherine of Siena, John Bunyan. When you walk into a cell and have the door close on you and the walls seem to close in on you and you are left with having to face in outer stressful circumstances a pressure that will reveal whether what you have inside you is real or not. The outer circumstances become a servant to us. They become a cruel messenger that tells us the true tale of what we are on the inside, who we are on the inside. Jesus asked a strange question that's recorded only in Luke chapter 18 when he said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in the earth? Interesting that that question is recorded only one time in Scripture. And I can say, <clears throat> when I am under the kind of stress I'm describing right now, and I've never been under this level of it, for heaven's sakes, obviously, no. I whine and complain and tremble under stressors that are not anywhere close to what Bonhoeffer faced. I might face them one day. But I recognize the dichotomy. I recognize the brokenness. I recognize the outer poise and the inner poison, the outer strength and the inner fear, the outer contempt for evil and the inner weakness at dealing with my own inconsistencies. And I come to the same conclusion that Bonhoeffer came to. Who am I? Am I the other or am I 
this one. Am I who I am today or the one I was yesterday? Am I both at the same time? A public hypocrite, but when I'm alone, contemptible and whining as a weakling? Which one is the real me? May it be the real me who prays, Lewis said. May, may it be the real you I pray to. In all my broken pieces crying out, unite my heart to fear your name. Lord, whoever I am, whatever I am, whichever part of me is the real me, may it be the real me who prays and the real you who listens. And may I be yours. That the Lord of all the earth Would care to know my name Would care to feel my hurt Who am I That the bright and morning star Would choose to light the way For my ever-wandering heart Not because of who I am but because of what you've done Not because of what I've done But because of who you are I am a flower quickly fading Here today and gone tomorrow A wave tossed in the ocean Vapor in the wind Still you hear me when I'm calling Lord, you catch me when I'm falling And you've told me who I am I am yours I am yours Who am I That the eyes that see my sin Would look on me to calm the sea would call out through the rain and calm the storm in me not because of who I am but because of what you've done not because of what I've done but because of who you are I am a flower queen Casting crowns, who am I? 
Father, we just lift up to you our hearts, all of our hearts, the parts we're in touch with and the parts we don't know how to get in touch with and the parts that we're only in touch with when we're in pain or when we're in difficulty. We ask, Father, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, enter into those weak or broken or sinful places, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name, that you would come into the parts of us that we have just maybe given up addressing, that you would renew our hearts in that area, that area that we most don't want to look at, that area that we most need to look at. But don't let us look in on our own. Give us your eyes and your heart. And Father, heal those parts of us that we don't know how to fix, which is all of us, all of our insides. We don't know how to fix. We just ask you to do what you promised in your word, that you would manifest the power of the new covenant by writing your laws on our hearts and minds and cause us to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name.